Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. I personally am a fan of this film. As a high schooler in 1987, I saw it at our local theater, and I am thrilled to be joined by an all-star panel of guests. First, returning to the podcast is Dennis McGuire, who was the first assistant director on the film. Dennis, great to see you again. Good to see you, Skid. Next, we have production designer Mick Strong. Mick, welcome to Below the Line. Hey, how's it going? And rounding out our panel is director of photography Roy Wagner. Roy, it's a pleasure. Nice meeting you. Excited to have all of you guys here. Thanks for joining me today. A warning for listeners, today's conversation may contain spoilers Go ahead and stop. Go watch the film if you haven't seen it. It's a highlight of the series, and I think you'll be amused and entertained, and we're going to go deep behind it. Let's start off with how each of you got involved with the film. I'll go first because I'm over here. Okay, Mick, you kick us off. I actually had done a couple of projects with New Line Cinema as construction coordinator or as an art department or special effects. I was actually working with Peter Chesney. I was running his shop. We were doing the mechanical effects for it. We were building the chair, the wheelchair, and we had done the rigging for this snake, and we'd done a lot of the mechanical effects rigging, but we had stalled at the point of not having a director. I had literally gone down with the billing records to New Line Cinema, you know, for our final billing with uh, with Peter Chesney, and uh, literally I was out of a job that day, <laughs> and waiting for the elevator because we were down on Rodeo Drive. And I'm waiting for the elevator and um, a new one of the executive producers, Jerry Olson. And we were, we were waiting for the elevator together. And we got in the elevator and, and I said, well, Jerry, hey, how's it going? He goes, I, I said, what the hell are you doing over here? And he goes, well, I'm taking over. Uh, I'm going to be a producer on um, this Nightmare on Elm Street 3 film. He says, I just got the job the good day. And I go, well, you really funny thing. You know, I just kind of worked my way out of a job today. I, I've been working on the special effects, the mechanical effects. And as a matter of fact, you need an art department, don't you? And he goes, yeah, actually, I think that we do. And I go, you know what? What you really need is you need an art director and a production designer that know what's going on with the effects on this film. And he goes, you know, you're actually right about that. And when we walked out on the eighth floor, I had the job. <laughs> basically talked yourself into the job well it was it was the perfect elevator pitch you know i had everything <laughs> on my side i knew jerry i knew the film i knew the effects i was a shoe in my god <laughs> look what you got yourself into yeah and look what i got myself into my god <laughs> now roy were you already associated with the film at this point or did you come no later? i had done a film previous with rachel she was the assistant director on it she'd had a lot of problems on the film i was just a lot of abusiveness, and, and I always took her side and tried to help her get through it. I, I didn't know anything about Rachel. I just knew that she was an assistant director and she was in trouble. And I've always loved assistant directors and thought of them as, as friends. Rachel Towley, who was the first AD on your previous film and was a line producer on Nightmare 3. So when the project was almost finished, Rachel said, I'm getting ready to do another movie. You ever heard of New Line Cinema? I said, no, I've never heard of them. And she said, uh, would you be interested in my uh, doing an interview with a director? And I said, 
Sure. I was always interested in getting paid, making money. <laughs> so I went to uh, offices at, in the Pacific Theaters building, which was on San Vicente or something like that. And I went upstairs and there was Chuck Russell. And I had a great meeting with him. I mean, uh, he said, you're hired and uh, uh, we'll talk to your agent. And I had a great meeting with him. And I, I walked out and I said to my wife, I said, wow, that was the best meeting I've ever had. And I didn't hear anything from anybody, didn't hear anything from Rachel, didn't hear from anybody. And suddenly I hear that they've started this movie, Nightmare on Elm Street, and, and I'm not involved with it. And, and I'm pretty pissed off. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm sitting in Copper Penny on uh, Sunset Strip, and this has gone on for some time. And, and uh, we all had pagers, and I got this page, 911 to a number I didn't know. So I went to the phone booth outside, it was Rachel. I, I wanted to say, go, go fuck yourself, you know. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jenny called me to tell me that I didn't have a job. But, you know, being the Hollywood whore that I am, uh, I decided to see what was going on. She said, we're in big trouble. We're way behind schedule. I said, when did you start? And she said, four days ago. I said, how can you be behind schedule in four days? <laughs> four days. <laughs> and uh, she said, we're, we're in big trouble. And we're going to replace the cinematographer. Okay. So uh, I come to UCLA tonight and uh, don't say anything to anybody on the set. They don't know anything about what's going on. So I went to Chuck Russell's trailer and I... Chuck Russell, the director of the film. Yeah, so to speak. Uh, if I'd only known. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I went to his trailer and he said, uh, we made a big mistake. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought wanted to say, no, you made a big mistake because it was his choice. But I didn't. And uh, he said, we'd like you to start tomorrow. And I said, oh, I had not read the script. I knew nothing about this. Fortunately, I'd been trained by a cinematographer who was accustomed to working fast and not seeing sets beforehand or any of that. And so his name was Harry Stradling Singer. So I, I kind of walked into this, this thing, not realizing the first night's work. I, I fired the crew. I replaced the, the grip and electric and the camera crew because I felt like Maybe it's not the cinematographer. Maybe it's the crew. Maybe there's an issue there. So you have to kind of start with a clean slate. And uh, that first night was in the graveyard, which was a huge, huge undertaking. We had to rig cars for effects for flashing lights. And, and we had to light this big, giant area. And the first shot that I did in the movie was the drive up with John Saxon and Craig Watson in the truck. And we had a Chapman crane, a little Nike, I think it was crane. And the truck pulls up into the shot and we can see reflected, the guys reflected in the mirror. And then as they drive away, we crane up and you see the entire universe. And the junkyard, yeah. Yeah, sure. and we were using arcs in those days. We were not using HMIs for the most part. <laughs> and so, you know, my crew had not seen this location. I think some of it had been pre-laid for cable, but in truth, it was frightening. And, and, you know, we already had the production manager and, and the producer saying, hey, we got to speed it up here. I said, I don't even know what this is all about. Yeah. But uh, Dennis, had, I knew of from before. I never met him before, but I knew who he was. And I thought, well, this is now. I This is someone that, that I can count on. My favorite thing about Dennis is he's no holds barred guy. I mean, you know, he takes no prisoners. If he, you know, if he walks into a situation and it's it's fucked up, then Dennis is going to find a way of getting out of it. And so I just tried to hang on for dear life and uh, Dennis would fight all the battles. We made our day 
uh, I, uh, we did first day, and it was it was tough. I think we went back, didn't we, Nick? We went we went more than one day. I think that we actually wound up back up there to do a lot of the stuff around the pit and the close yeah. up. And I don't think that we were any more prepared than anybody else. Yeah. In all honesty, I think that we just did the outside of it. We had not gone in. We did that later. This is a picture of me in the pit. <laughs> you can look on my face, and you can see. I'm asking, what the fuck did I get myself into? Roy, that was the big dramatic killing of Saxon, right? Yeah. He, he got impaled. You guys had to do a stake through his chest. So we, yeah. And I might say that we also did all the plates. That's right. We all did yeah. the plates for the Freddy uh, oh. skeleton, the uh, Harryhausen kind of uh, yeah. images and stuff like that. The stop motion stuff. And the truth is, I think we those plates were shot I believe it with at least a Mitchell camera, but possibly VistaVision. So we weren't just shooting with a regular Aeroflex BL, which was the camera we used on the show. We were using a lot of different effects cameras to, to accomplish everything. And all the time, I'm not, I've not seen any of the drawings. I've not seen anything. Uh, Mick and I had never worked together. So I was kind of trying to catch up the entire show. For me, I was lucky in, in many ways because the director didn't follow any agendas. He didn't follow the, the schedule. He didn't follow the script. He didn't care about any of that. And or explain what he was doing. Oh, well, <laughs> or, or actually, the thing about Chuck Russell is that Chuck Russell would show up in front of a set or a location, and he would just immediately turn around and say something like, "Well, yeah, but we're we're not doing any of this." <laughs> And you just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Dennis, were you there when Roy showed up? How did you get involved? When I got called in uh, Arkansas about it, my only point of contact was Rebecca Greeley, who was acting on the set as a UPM because Jerry Olson was also uh, got embedded with uh, like, I think they even named him vice president of production or something. So he wasn't with us, even though he was getting the UPM credit because he was a DGA member. So that's how they got around that. But so uh, my first night was that Monday night. And I met Roy, I met Mick, I met everybody. The only person I knew was Rebecca. Well, and my second AD and a couple of PAs that we had. I didn't know the first two movies. I, I heard of them, but I didn't go to those kind of movies personally. <laughs> so I remember when we were finally ready to do a Freddy sequence, I said to my second over the phone, you know, have somebody go get Freddie. Then I hear back a few seconds later, well, he's in makeup. So I go get the hockey mask on him and bring him out <laughs> here. That's why these guys. Can't be that reverberated around everybody, because I'm telling you something. The thing is, is I'm working with a whole bunch of people that are fans. Yeah. Right. Not particularly me, but uh, but I did get to see the two first two films but yeah. everybody was like oh my god we have an idiot <laughs> so then quickly my second runs over and he's like no freddie's the a burn guy but i'm like the burn so when i saw him it clicked finally that you know quickly after that the next morning you know i barely got any sleep because it was a long rough night the very first night yeah, and like i said i'd been gone for 15 16 weeks anyways and so i literally only had saturday and sunday to kind of recoup be around my family, hit the ground running with Roy, who I didn't know. And uh, we had to get through this thing. And so 
eventually we finished there. And then I think the second week, didn't we move to the VA hospital in um, Westwood? Yeah, that's where I first saw Freddie. That's right. We did the hallways, some of the hallways, hallways and rooms and the, 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 hospital. the hospital beds. So I had gone through a week with Roy and also with Chuck. So we're at UCLA. And then I remember the one night we're in one building at UCLA that they let us be in because it wasn't being used. And Mick, you guys set up like, a, was it an operating room? I don't know. It was a room with a bunch of stuff. And of course, once again, Chuck showed up and you didn't really have a game plan. So I was kind of pushing them through. So finally, you know, we're in hour 14 or something. And we were only supposed to be there for one night. Yeah, on UCLA, right? Yeah, at UCLA, a veterans hospital. Right. You know, next to UCLA, the VA. I finally said to him, I go, Chuck, how much do you have left? And he says, I need this, this, and this. And I said, okay, that'll be an hour minimum. So I go to Rachel. And then the, we also had Nikki Martin. Nikki Martin. 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 was really Nikki talented. Martin. Yeah. So I go to Rachel. I go to Nikki. I go, all right, here's the deal. He wants three more shots. It'll be easily an hour to get through it. I don't think it's worth wrapping and coming here and shooting because an hour tomorrow will turn out to be three hours minimum with him. And then we have to move across the VA hospital to another building in the middle of the night. Not a good idea. So they go, okay, we'll bite the bullet, pay the overtime. So I go, okay, Chuck, I got you an extra hour. We got to shoot. We got to get going. So we do his three shots and I said, okay, great. Everybody. Tomorrow we end up in building D across the way, blah, blah, blah. And in, in the middle of this, he goes, no, no, I'm not done. <laughs> and I look at him and go, what? He goes, well, I want to do this. I want to, I go, no, no, Chuck, I got you the extra. And I'm saying this in front of the crew. I go, Chuck, I got you the extra hour on the promise that we were done so we could open up tomorrow in the other building. Now you're wanting more time in here. I go, no, I'm not. So he got mad at me. We walked outside, had some words. And I go, Chuck, I asked you, you told me now you're going back on what you said. I go, no, no. So then we ended up shooting a couple more days. So it got to the point where I was actually starting to just push him around, you know, because I didn't really care. Go ahead, fire me. You know, I'll go home, sit on the beach in Malibu. Happy camper. You know, I made enough money on the other movie. I don't need this grief and aggravation so one night roy where did we go see dailies at what was that place olympic and bundy i don't remember the name of it no so we come out after watching dailies and he wants to talk to me afterwards so i'm like barely two weeks into working with this guy and he's getting all huffy and puffy and so i just put my hand up and i said okay chuck here's the deal i'll walk back in i'll tell rachel and nikki they need a new assistant director tomorrow i put my hand out i said good luck you know, he, he just freaks. And I know a lot of this we shouldn't put out there on the internet. But I don't care anymore. No. <laughs> I never cared for the first. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could tell you could tell I didn't care because when Chuck Russell eventually got a racer, he told me I had the job. And the same thing happened. I didn't hear for anybody. And then all of a sudden I hear they're in prep and I call and I wanted to talk to the UPM and the uh, production coordinator says, well, we have an assistant director already. I go, oh, how funny, because Chuck told me I was doing the film. You know, the, the thing is that he spent a career informing every film he's ever worked on why they shouldn't hire him for the next project. 
you got it worse than any of us, Mick. I mean, with, with all the work that you were doing with just stats. And I asked Chuck one time, I said, how do you get away with all this? How do you <laughs> really how I always want to know with him what, what he told me. He said, once you get them pregnant, they can't do anything to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the most telling story about Chuck that exists. Okay. We filmed a forced perspective staircase, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. When we were filming that, I had asked, what are the shots at the top? And we lined that out, exactly. And I said, well, when we're in that room and we have that door hanging there, the the, the door to nowhere, which was meticulously set up, I mean, it it was literally hanging in the air so like a trick, right? And it was all lined up perfectly. And then we were going to be at the top of that, and we had literally cut a hole in the ceiling of the warehouse in order to oh, get the downtown. Camera. We had taken out struts out of the warehouse in order to make that set work. And he got up on a crane. Do you remember when he did this? He got up on the fucking crane, and he sat up there, and he said, I need the rest of the room up here right next to it. I need to shoot from here down. And we're like, no, no we, we went over this meticulously we know we have storyboards we know how this looks and he goes he goes well we might know that but i need that room up here and he sat on the crane that day and waited while we hoisted the flats up i mean just literally just to put the edge of a wall back there which probably he he literally sat there for an hour you know up in the air right sat on that chair and waited for us to do that Nothing was ever his fault, yeah, right? No. no, oh. He would blame everybody else. And I, I'm sure that's what happened to the other cinematographer. So after that night of uh, watching dailies, you know, and then he freaked and realized that I didn't care if I was let go or not. It, he backed off. He's like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so after that, it was really full on push him around. We shot a lot of the, their first week of the movie. We reshot, right? If I remember, we went back to the house, the actual house on uh, off of Sunset. That was the reason he got fired in the first place was because they wanted to do this trick where she's in bed. Yeah, yeah, on the front lawn. Yeah, on the front lawn, right. But he wanted to connect that to her dream state. Yeah. So she gets out of the bed and, and the camera rises up and you see the nightmare house. So we're supposed to be in her house in her bedroom and then suddenly we're not in her bedroom we're actually out on the street that wasn't necessarily the problem the problem was that they had tried to do this this shot where the camera rises up from that position and then suddenly races across the street a literal street and goes up to the door of the house i saw all the cribbing they were building for the crane i said well you can't do this even the best cribbing in the world the camera is going to be moving like this especially if you're moving fast I said, the only way I can figure out how to do it is to do a speed ramp so that you're normally, when you're in the bed with her, it's normal speed. And as she rises up, it changes speed once you start to move across. I remember all the discussions with that because at one point we had talked about that we were literally going to move the whole bed with the camera and the whole up. Oh, all as one unit. Yeah, because we couldn't figure out how to get the bed out of the way because the bed was such an intricate part of it as we were coming up off of it. So we had all kinds of crazy plans for that. <laughs> well, you know, we ended up doing, not, there was no Steadicam. I, I know the Steadicam was invented, but we didn't have one. So it was built with, with crane uh, track. And the problem with that was you could see the crane track if you tipped down at all. The only way I could figure out how to do it was to do a speed ramp 
And that meant changing the speed of the camera down to, I felt like two or four frames per second until we got to the door, but you had to dolly very, very, very slowly. So you wouldn't get all that stuff. And it would literally all the kids in the front had to be very still so that we could get to that door and then go back to normal speed. Well, in those days, I mean, you had to use arcs because there were no square wave HMI ballasts. And uh, as soon as you change the, the speed from 24 frames, they would start flickering. So everything had to be lit with arcs. And I was operating as well. I wasn't just the cinematographer. I was operating as well. So it was a total minefield with him because anything you would tell him, he would change. And the thing is, is this, and, and Roy, back me up because we were both, we would sit back and we would try and meticulously plan things. We were doing really complicated stuff. And the thing is, is the wild factor for everything was Chuck would change something and it would screw everybody up. Yeah. If today we were doing that, you'd, you'd say, oh, we'll do it in CG and don't have to worry about that. But in those days, it was all mechanical, physical. Everything was there in the camera. If you didn't get it then, you were screwed. The bicycle uh, that had oh, the-, the melting tricycle just by itself. I mean, we just shot that thing forever. <laughs> and falling into the chair when she fell back into the chair. One of my favorite big- shots still to this day <laughs> is that little shot. I had to talk him into doing that because he wanted to do as a, a blue screen effect. I said, no, this just cut slats in the, in the chair. We'll raise it up, raise the chair up on apple boxes. You won't see the apple boxes. She'll fall into a pad. Yeah. And then we just uh, mask off the bottom of the frame so that uh, then when we wind back and we can shoot a plate of uh, the bottom of that portion, it was incredibly simple. It was all done in camera. I think we did it basically very first take, but then he wanted to do it again. And right. I said, okay. I said, you have it. All right. So fine. We'll give you another. And then he was still wanting to keep going. I go, no, you have it. You can print it 10 times as much as you want, but we're moving on, dude. We're moving on. <laughs> My worst experience in that film was with, uh, with Nancy and with uh, what, what's the young girl's name, the blonde young girl, uh, uh, Patricia, where we spent an entire evening shooting 45 takes because she couldn't remember her lines. Oh, well, that was that one late night. Yeah, we had, in fact, we offered her cue cards. I think we ended up doing yeah. cue cards for her. And I don't think she'd been in the business very long. And, and No, she was lot, 18. She was lots of talk about replacing her. And, and it was just an absolute nightmare. And I kept trying to tell Chuck, Chuck, we don't need to do this two shot where we have them both together. Let's just do a close up of her so she can have the cards off. And she, he wouldn't do it. And then finally, we ended up doing a close up with the cards off. Do you guys remember, I don't know, for lack of a better word uh, or term, the Hall of Mirrors when they had to go through? How many times he wanted it? And same thing. Like, dude, we got it. We're moving on. He was like the early version of David Fincher. By the way, that that one wide shot, that really was a beautiful piece of work. I mean, you know, and the thing is, is it had so many moving parts to it. It had... So many people were, and and the thing is, is I remember that they came up with the concept of the shot in a very short period of time, and we couldn't get together that much breakaway glass that fast because you had to like you had to order stuff like that ahead of time. People are standing in front of that set the day that we made it, and they're going, "Well, now what are we going to do with this?" Right? And we're like, <laughs> "Wait a minute, we really got to have this planned out." And a lot of the glass that you see come out when that glass breaks is actual glass is actual plate glass 
because what we did is we interspersed the stunt people with the tempered glass. And then we had like two sheets of breakaway glass that we put next to the women that were in the back. But in the front, we just went ahead and used actual glass. Did we blow the glass before they hit it? I can't remember now. Yeah, we preloaded everything and we, and Peter Chesney had come up with uh, a little charge. Well, and here was the interesting thing is, is that if you notice, there was a different method of breaking it depending on what it was that they were breaking all the way around so when it breaks it doesn't quite all break at the same time because the of all the different devices used to break it it, it was in, and we took huge chunks out of one of the stunt people oh, i don't remember that not only that but the glass was not necessarily attached to the wall it was all forced perspective we had to adjust the glass to the camera and he wanted to do dolly shots and all that it took forever. I, I remember because you and I, you and I were together at the mouth of that with the cameras trying to adjust each pane of glass and make it make it sit at the right angle. Yes. Because it was a DP's nightmare, DP art department crossover nightmare, because every pane of glass could reflect something that we didn't want it to. We're going around trying to get this one set and then that one set and then that one set. And it was like nothing could move, yeah. right? And something always moved. When nothing can move, something always no moves. place to light from because the, it had a ceiling. So the, the, the obtuse glass or the uh, pitched glass were the only places you could put light to. And if you moved it all, then you were screwed. I got openly pissed off at Chuck, I think. Oh, yeah. That was the day that you kicked that bucket. <laughs> You almost, you almost took me out with a bucket. <laughs> I didn't know I was that strong. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm walking up to the mouth of the set just after we did the shot, and he and he and Chuck are arguing, and he comes to the end of that hallway, and there's a little one-gallon bucket that my sister had left there, and he turns around and he kicks it right towards me, but he couldn't see me because I was coming from the dark, and I was thinking, oh shit, it went right over my shoulder. I was like, oh, there you go. <laughs> And, and you know what? That was a mellow day. <laughs> yeah, we, we were working 21-hour days. I mean, at the end of first unit photography, Chuck would go over to second unit and uh, third unit, and I was expected to go with him. And he had cinematographers for those units, but it was just like... Oh, he tried to get me to go. I go, Chuck, they don't have enough money to work me around the clock. I mean, for me, it was non-union. Uh, for you, you were in the Director's Guild, so it was a different deal. I, I, it was just that every every turn and and the thing is if you look at the movie it, it kind of feels like it's pretty simple but it's not simple at all because skid we also while we were shooting normal stuff and that even had elaborate effects like we were running in the other back half of this massive warehouse in downtown la because right. they couldn't afford real sound stages and having to shoot a 40 by 60 foot blue screen or something we were outside we had a backlit and the thing is is back then the way that you got a quality image for a blue screen, you used four banger fluorescent lights. Right. And you were just one light right after the other. And you did the solid 40 by 20. And then you put the blue screen on it. And I'm not kidding. It was well known on the stage that you either worked back there or you worked in front because you couldn't go from the one to the other. Because if you did, it would freaking blind you for about... 45 minutes. 
I'm not kidding. It was so blue. You would walk back there and then that was it. That's what was the visual effects guys. He was, he would Nick pit. Like I remember him nitpicking the upper right corner. Boy, Yateman. That guy just annoyed me to, and he annoyed me for several films. Oh, he and I got into it all the time. And then Roy would get into it with them. And I turn, I would turn to Rachel going, do you want us to get the shot? Because that upper right corner, it doesn't matter that it's a half a stop different. Right, Roy? Yeah. And definitely film was much harder than digital because you had to have an even exposure. But, but we weren't using half of that screen. That was a huge no. screen. Yeah, that was and, an enormous screen. <laughs> I think, Roy, you brought in some stuff from Mary Poppins. I had worked at Disney and I yeah. I around. So you showed him. Sodium vapor. And uh, uh, I said, you know, the, you're never going to get the screen that even. I said, you're going to have to rotoscope it. It's just not going to happen. And because we had dead hanging bodies in front of it. Sometimes and then other stuff. I'll never forget one time which we were talking. And he said, this is ridiculous. We can't get extras to, to hang from these things and, and actually. Oh, and, oh and my God. They look, kept look passing this out. Person. This, this person is doing a great job. And she was dying. <laughs> In the midst yeah. of this, if he hadn't pointed up to her, she would have been dead. Thing is, is this, and this was the weird thing about back then, extras would do anything to be on the film. And here was the problem, is they wouldn't let you know that they were about to die. Yeah. They would just hang there in these harnesses. If you've ever been in one of those harnesses. Oh, they're so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. You only have so much time in one of those harnesses. And so many nuts. Yeah. And the thing is, is I'm not kidding. If you're a guy, it feel it literally feels like you're hanging by your, you know what I'm saying. But the thing is, is they wouldn't say anything. They would say, oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm, and they were out. Uh, it, it was no reason for them to hang that long, but it, it was just every turn we were kind of hand making everything. Skid, we were literally having to do elaborate shots like that at the same time shooting real scenes with actors. For example, when we were shooting the Welcome to Prime Time Bitch set, which is a pretty set, we had to walk away from that set. And so effects could take over at a certain point. Oh, he would argue with me. He would want to sit there and watch Mick and his crew work. I'm like, no, we're going over there and <laughs> shooting. We're not sitting here while we watch Mick and his group work. I go, it doesn't work that even, I told, I would say to him, even on major films, we don't do that. We're going to go over here and shoot while they're working. And then they come over and they say, we're done. And we go back over and we shoot it again. So in fact, we would have that set. I don't know how many, how many different versions of that set oh. you had. But I know that the bedroom set or the, the living room set, we had a number of different versions of that set. Because you had to build one that was for mechanical effects and one that was just for actual work. Because... Some of those floors or some of those walls, we'd turn them sideways so we could photograph them. And The other thing was you guys would have to take certain sets over to the blue screen and turn them upside down. Turn them upside down. Turn them up. Well, how about that kid, Joey? The guy who was playing Joey. Oh, my God. The things we put this kid through. Yes. I mean, the Joey character was mute. And his nightmare sequence is him getting strapped to a bed by a seductive nurse. I think that was Joey's first film. <laughs> yeah we stretched him out over a bed that was in a pit we put lamps underneath his butt so that he literally his oh. butt was burning and he's squirming and remember when we said hey you don't have to squirm anymore the camera's not and he goes you're fucking you're burning my ass off <laughs> that guy and then we put him up on his side outside yes. 
we spun him a couple of times. The ultimate thing is then we went and we filmed like uh, three weeks later and we did the chest and he had to lay in this bed and literally piss in a pan for 16 hours so, so that they could do the effects of come get him, bitch. But Skid, his reward, though, for putting up with all that crap was doing the scene with that, that Playboy bunny, Topless, who, who Chuck eventually slept with. Oh, well, that's a shocker. <laughs> Give me a little context. Does anybody remember how many weeks of filming you actually did on this? 42 days we shot. 42 days. And was it supposed to be 42 days and you guys just grinded it out? Or 40, Mick, I think, right? picked up a couple of extra. Yeah. Well, we had to reshoot a bunch of stuff and we had to incorporate that in our our schedule to reshoot. I told them, if you're asking us to reshoot this stuff and you gave them 40 days, how do you expect us to shoot in 40 days and shoot, reshoot all that stuff? So I think Rachel argued with uh, Bob Shea and, and Sarah Risher that we needed like two. And what that was a big deal to New Line to go two more days. Well, it was interesting with New Line, right? Because the Nightmare franchise is what put them on the map. Yes. And right. the first one, again, well, budget, but it sounds like three in. I guess I'm a little surprised that they're not investing in this flagship property at this point. Wait a minute, because Skid, let me put this in context. Here's the thing. Nightmare on Elm Street was a huge hit for them. Okay. But then the second one wasn't as big of a hit. Now, here's the thing. At that time, there was a certain amount of attrition per film when you got away from the original one, right? You know, the second, the third, the, it's just a natural thing. But here's the thing, Bob Shea, and I was in the meetings with him originally about this. He said, we're going to turn this around. Three main things. First of all, we're going to let Robert England off the chain. We're going to use his abilities as an actor which they hadn't before. I mean, they started to let him have a personality. That was one. The second one was they kind of fixed the, the Superman problem that they had. Superman problem in this case is, well, eventually you have to go to sleep and you're done, right? But they wrote it that we were going to pull people in. So it kind of gave the whole idea a fresh take. And then the third thing, and that was kind of my thing, is the third thing was I said, we're going to pull it on stage instead of being out on location. We're going to see if we can hype all this up a lot. You know, we're going to go further with the dreams than we, than we ever did before. The thing is, is that's what he was betting on there is that all those things would actually, you know, reinvigorate the series because by the time you're doing the third, that was a pretty dicey thing back then. <laughs> the third could have died easily. And he hit a home run because if I remember correctly, you may know the numbers because you're closer to it. But I think Friday night, they opened at like nine and a half million dollars gross in the theaters on a four million dollar movie. So that first weekend, I forget what the total Friday, Saturday, Sunday was, but they hit a home run. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The thing with Nightmare 3, it was, it, they threw a lot of money at Nightmare. I think they'd spend more money on than any any previous one, but... But the, it all went to effects, all, was, all yeah. went to the physical. There was nothing left over to pay anybody. Uh, <laughs> it was just, you know, so what? You had to work a 20-hour day. That's the way it was. Literally, that's the way it was. It really yeah. was. If we had any great assets in this, it was Frank Darabont and Nikki Marvin and Bruce Wagner. Bruce and, and Nikki and Frank were really good writers. Nikki went on to be the producer and truly the writer of Shawshank. 
Shawshank, yeah. They were kind of keeping it all together. And then Sarah uh, Risher was extraordinary. She just had a baby and, and she kind of put up with everything. And Nikki represented uh, another company. She wasn't yes. with the she, The other money. Yeah, yeah she, was, she was a company that had done a lot of pornos and made a lot of money and they, they gotten sort of legitimate. Skid, you were about to say, yeah, it, it did start out chaotic because I got that first call even on a Wednesday. Roy said he was called on Thursday. So I was called on the Wednesday and they knew they were in trouble. It doesn't sound like things really settled down. It never settled down. No, it never. It was, it was balls to the wall. Basically shooting on a on a shoestring budget, or at least from a crew perspective. And then I think it was four million roughly. Do you remember, Mick? It's for three and a half. Three and a half. There you go. Three and yeah. a half. Yeah. And a, and a director who uh, maybe first timer. Had to take a role to get him get him through it. Yeah. Here's first the thing. Time. I mean, basically, what had happened to the other cinematographer? He was very talented, but he did not have the experience that I had. And I don't know who the assistant director was, but it, uh, Jim Banky, who was became a producer. But you know, uh, Dennis had had a lot of, of war war wounds as well as I'm sure Mick had, and we were just not we were going to get what he wanted, but we were not going to put up with the bullshit. No. So we ended up doing it. They literally ended up having to put me because I fell asleep driving home one night, and they had to put me in I think the Chateau Marmont or something like that the, for the the length of the show, but. It was grueling. And for me, I was, I was never away from the camera. I was operating or lighting, being the director of photography. And to be honest with you, my job was far less difficult than Mix was, who was building, I don't know how many sets you ended up building, but you built a ton of sets. Plus overseeing yeah. the effects and everything like that. And, and Dennis, and Dennis, who yeah. was, you know, he was the interface for me with production. Normally production would come to me and start screaming and yelling at me, but this just didn't put up with it. Skid, I came out of the prop maker world. So I my first job, real paying job, I had done stuff on things that my father had done, but I was a prop maker on All the President's Men in 1975. So I, I built sets until the early 80s when I asked uh, after I had been on uh, Only When I Laugh, a Neil Simon uh, movie, I asked if I could interview as a PA, set PA. Even on that film, when sometimes the grips would have trouble trying to figure out which walls to pull or something. And I would go the key grip. I was the key set PA. So I go, well, if you pull that there and pull that fly, that piece of furniture, there's block and fall up there. So fly that big credenza thing out and then everything else can flow. And they, these guys would turn around and stare at me until the uh, production manager, executive producer said, why don't you guys listen to me? Built the fucking set. <laughs> And after that, a very famous key grip, Dick, uh, um, oh God, I can't think of his last name, came up to me and, and stood next to me and said, so you built sets on this? And I go, all of them, all the apartments, the Joe Allen, all, yeah. I go, yeah, 16 weeks. We built right through this uh, screen actor strike in the early eighties because there was so much construction. And so, yeah, so I knew how difficult mixed job and all those guys and the only and, thing that you know, stopped but, when we got involved was the chaos it was it was controlled well, chuck <laughs> it, it was controlled chaos and i mean yeah. basically we were all fighting for our lives i've written a couple of books about different films and and i wrote a book about nightmare on street four which i considered a really positive experience and kind of an interesting big last of the pre-digital films and stuff and the thing is, is I, I've gotten interviews and stuff, but 
the experience of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 just wasn't a happy experience. It was really hard, and I am super proud of the work I did. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, it was just a pure shit show just all the way. And, and for me, it was horrible because I didn't know anything about the concept. And Jerry, I, who, who I know is a friend of yours, but Jerry was on my ass from the first day. Make it darker, make it darker, make it darker. Because apparently on, on Nightmare 2, you could see too much of Freddy. Yeah. And he wanted it to be darker looking. Right. Well, I've been known all my life for being, look at what you're seeing right here. I'm right. a dark cinematographer. <laughs> and for Jerry to do this, you know, we're shooting film and I'm doing what he's saying. I'm stopping down further and further, not wanting to do it. But it was, it was difficult. I remember at one point I had everybody saying, well, I, I'm over budget. It was a really strange argument because they, they came in and, and Rachel says, uh, you're over budget, you're over budget, you're over budget. And so I fired everybody and showed up by myself the next day and walked out onto the set. Let me just say this. That is kind of the way that you get an instant amount of respect from everybody because the fucking bunch of people just freaked out. Within two hours, my entire crew was back and nobody ever said anything to me again about budget ever because they were afraid that the same thing was going to happen again. I had gone so far with the chaos, you know, it was like, OK, look, you know what? If you want to have chaos, that's all right. But you just keep paying everybody. Right. <laughs> and it was a free fall. I think the two of us talked quickly on about when we sort of started clicking that the mistake they made was not firing Chuck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Nikki could have directed. Nikki was really smart. She could have directed that movie. Well, there you go. She was literally the brains behind the entire operation anyway. The little big film tried to be prepped properly with the storyboards and talking about the exact shots and whatnot like you would do. And he couldn't abide by right, it. I, right. I would show him the storyboards that I was given. This is your shot. What? What? Now, wait. That's what drives you nuts. You yeah. know what? Here's the oh, thing. Yeah. Peter Von Schaule was a friend of mine. I had known him from way before this, right? And he was the one that was doing the storyboards. And I was very carefully on the other side of the meetings going, well, the, this is great. And, and now we need to ask him about this and this. And the thing is, is going into it before you guys got the stage, I thought we kind of got a map here and we're ready to go. And we never did anything vaguely like any of the storyboards from then on. I mean, just... I still have all the storyboards and they don't match oh, anything. No. <laughs> they don't match anything, right? <laughs> I'd have the storyboards in my back pocket, of course, and I'd go... Right, in your hand! <laughs> you guys agreed to this how many weeks ago? We're the new me. <laughs> so this is what Roy and I are told, this is what we're shooting. So we're shooting this, because if you go around over here, we don't have all of that. That doesn't exist. Let me give you another little trivia here. So I had a lot of friends that worked on The Blob, right? Which was his next film. And the thing is, is I'm sitting there and I, I was trying to describe to a couple of the effects guys. They said, well, what is it like? And I go, well, you know, all that preparation that you're going to make and you're going to go to the boards and all that. You're not going to do any of that. I had them calling me while they were shooting The Blob going, holy shit, when you said that. Yeah, I thought, oh, well, yeah, that's right. Sure, they're not going to go according to the boards, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, he did ask me to do that, uh, the blob. And then I was on a picture that was delayed. So I had to call him up and said, I can't do the, your film because I'm like two weeks over schedule. 
So my friend uh, who was the PA for me, then my key second, Josh McClagan, who went on to do Titanic and Avatar and all. So Josh did it. And he said he was, Chuck was a nightmare. And that was uh, his first job as a first. I, I was supposed to do the blob too. Another promise from Chuck. Yeah, there you go. And the producer uh, told Chuck, we're not hiring Roy, Roy Wagner. You want to hire a guy that could win an Academy Award. For the blob? <laughs> yeah, so I went, oh, okay. Yeah, what was he smoking? Maybe worth noting that Chuck Russell did not come back for Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Mick, you had Rennie Harlan for that. So that's Rennie Harlan, yeah, a different yeah. experience on that set, it sounds like. Yes. R Rennie Harlan kind of stayed out of the way of the crew, which was, which was nice. <laughs> you know, in my time with some A-list guys, they took the advice of certain key members they hired. So... When I would say to Alan Parker, we shouldn't go way outside of Buenos Aires and move everybody. We're going to be at this slaughterhouse in the heart of town that's walled. You're talking about Avita when you work. Avita, yes. And so he was looking at me funny and prep, but the Academy Award winning British product designer got this smile on his face. And then he piped up and said, yeah, it would be easier and better if we built a couple flats back there. We have the dirt roads already, blah, blah, blah. We have total control. We can get Madonna from the hotel to this secure location. So certain directors will listen to key players like your production designer, your cameraman, your assistant director saying, this will make your life easy if you can go this way and do it. How about the snake scene? His <laughs> name is snake scene. Roy, I'm glad you brought it up. I want to talk about the scene where Freddie turns into a snake. A dick. A dick. <laughs> a dick. That was a dick. <laughs> we did get a good chuckle the first time we saw it because we didn't see any of this in prep. The funny thing about that was, and I was the liaison, and I kept saying, well, you know, what color should this be? And, yeah. and they said, well, well, obviously, it should be just like his face. You know, just that same model thing on the face. When I went and talked to the effects guys, and we we literally had discussions about it, yeah. And and I said, well, they wanted it to be like a dick, right? Because obviously, it couldn't be anything else if you made it look like him, right? I can't remember the the name of the oh the, Patricia Arquette. But yeah. we get her on the stage and we get it set up there, and they go, "This looks like an enormous dick," and we go, "Yes, we've been telling you that for weeks. It's a dick." And when Chuck finally saw it. It had to be repainted on set, uh, decisions about what that was. We had a great puppeteer. Uh, that the, the team of puppeteer people, amazing. Great job with it, yeah. really. They really did. No, and the, the stuff we did when she had to get picked up and then we had the stunt girl slam down. You had to build a set uh, higher. Yeah. Crane underneath it so we could raise her up. And Skid, let me go through this just to give you an idea of all the parts that were moving in this. First of all, when she stands there, and the floor starts to rumble, there's a mechanical device that was a bunch of roller skates with football helmets on them. And they rolled around the floor, and then they rolled up the wall, and they broke all that out. Which, by the way, the very first time that we did it, the effects guys, they had a clip that they hooked the track to the rope that we used to pull it. Well, yeah, there's a bunch of guys pulling. And what happened was, is we got 20 people to pull it, and they didn't let that go the first time. And we literally took the track and stretched it across the set. And it didn't even touch the walls the first time. 
Roy completely remembers that because he he's in there. He's going, guys, guys. Got to go over here. We, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> this is the one time I literally had 20 people pull on that rope. About halfway through, I, I really pulled together what had happened and that we had pulled the track all the way through there. And we stopped and everybody looked absolutely panicked about it. And I started to laugh. And I swear to God, because... Well, that set was three different sets, if I remember correctly. That's right. It was so. So that was one set, and then those walls stayed there while we did the first of the snake, which was her being swallowed, and we pulled the snake off of her, right? And then we had the puppeting that had to be done, and in order to do that, we had to take the walls that were there, and we had to put them eight feet high up on another platform, and we moved those walls over, and then there's a a camera crane. Then the stunt person is standing on a camera crane and lifted up into the set and then dropped. That's the funny thing about the way that it worked when you were using gravity and stuff like that to do your uh, effects and stuff. You think you're looking at one set and what you're looking at three or you're looking at four sets, right? Well, they all had to look exactly the same. I'll give you the funniest thing about that whole thing is when we were done with that and we were talking with Chuck Weiss, the editor, Chuck gets back to us one day and he says, you know, we have a problem in that. At the beginning of that sequence, it doesn't make sense. The floor starts to float up like this. And then all of a sudden, when the snake goes up the wall, we get it. But we've had this period of just the floor floating. And we need some way to explain that that's a snake. And Peter and I are messing around at Peter's shop. And Chuck sends that message over. And I said, you know, I have an idea. Go get a uh, Clorox bottle and tie a rope to it. And I'm going to go across the street and I'm going to get a Oriental carpet that's sitting in that secondhand store. And I remember to this day, I paid $12 for it. And we came <laughs> back and he had an old Mitchell, 35 millimeter Mitchell, and he aims it down at the carpet. And we literally pulled the Clorox bottle underneath the carpet. And here's the thing to this day, that whole incredibly complicated sequence. Predicated on. First thing that you see is a Clorox bottle. And here's the thing is once you know that it's a Clorox bottle, you see the Clorox bottle. It's crazy. It's like I tell that to people and they, and they go, oh, yeah, right. It's a Clorox bottle. And then they come back and they send me messages that go, holy shit, that looks like a Clorox bottle. Sometimes it's the littlest shots that save the biggest effects, right? Absolutely. And the truth is that that was all the way through this film. It was like, yeah, I've always said that motion picture is the last vestige of the industrial revolution because we do everything by hand. Yeah, absolutely. And in those days, there was no CG. I mean, photochemical optical effects were expensive. And so we were trying to figure ways of not doing optical effects and doing them in camera as much as possible physically. I mean, it would be so easy to do the snake scene today in relation to what we went through. It was just, there was no money for anything. And so it had to be ingenuity that, that won out. So I, certainly the Clorox bottles sounds perfectly right to me because that's the way it was all the way through the film. And we left miles and miles and miles of equipment on sets and have to order more equipment because we had to go back. We couldn't take that stuff away because it would be impossible to match it. So we would leave that equipment so the effects crew could come in and shoot in that same set. The, the Welcome to Prime Time Bitch number is a perfect example where all that lighting had to stay. We'd move on to the next set and effects uh, or second unit would come in and do the mechanical stuff. Another classic scene where Freddie as the television picks the woman up and smashes her into the set. And that line, incidentally, he came up with on the set. He came up to Chuck while we were on the set. And he said, I've been thinking about this. And I think I should say the line, Welcome to Prime Time Bitch. 
was not in the script. You know, it was that kind of innovation. So it was a lot of people who were desperate to try to make make good <laughs> because it was our careers. You know, we were trying to survive on the basis right. of this penny budget with an asshole director who only cared about protecting himself and getting laid by whomever might be nearby. And uh, I, you can quote me. I, I don't care. <laughs> uh, I'm too old to care. The thing is that it was like going to war. When I was in Vietnam, that's the way it felt. You know, you were at war. And uh, the only way you could survive was all of us buddies uh, coming together and finding a way of, of protecting each other. And that's really how that happened. I had an incredible grip crew. They ended up doing Forrest Gump and Dracula with uh, Coppola. The Grips from Hell, that's how they got their title. The Grips from Hell, right. Yeah, uh, Pat Daly. Pat was wonderful. Incredible gaffer and, and a really good group of people who just said, they never said no to me. You know, they just kind of went, okay. And, you know, the, the Grips from Hell helped a lot as far as riggings were, were concerned. Oh, because yeah. They were used to doing big, giant things. And so they had to find a way of doing it in spite of the money. Yeah, Pat was a master rigger. He was a climber, you know, so he knew how to tie stuff. I mean, he was putting stuff up on, yeah, it was, and we were working way faster than even episodic TV. And the problem was you couldn't work ahead of yourself because Chuck would change it. Well, yeah, as much as he tried at times, I would, you know, I. Well, thank God for you, because that was the only thing I had between me and Janet. You know, because I, I adored Rachel and Nikki. So I felt so obligated because they were getting beat up by him. He treated them horribly because they were women. You know, Rachel would be crying. You should be. Oh, crying. yeah, exactly. You know, I'd see her around the back of the set wall and I'm like, Rachel, we'll get through this. I promise you we'll get through this. You know, people say they, they love this movie. And I look back and go, can't you choose something I really love working on? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying is, is there's something about me that doesn't want to write a book about this film because it was just such a, a funky experience, you know, it was like going to war. It's the only way I can explain it is like going to war, uh, except in war, you know who the enemy is. <laughs> oh, I knew who the enemy was. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of knew that, you know, yeah, this experience as difficult and traumatic as it was. Clearly, you guys are still friends after we're going on more than 35 years now. And yeah. it's really did bring you guys together. That's what happens when you go to war. That's yeah, yeah that's right. What happens? Yeah. I mean, you're buddies forever. All right, guys. Well, this has been a lot of fun for me. Mick, just as happy not to have you write the book. We can let the podcast stand as the testament. And there you uh, go. We're in agreement on that. Guys, we'll call it a wrap. This was fun. Thanks so much for being here today. You're welcome, Skip. You're welcome, man. It's great. Let me take a quick minute for closing credits. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends. Thanks again from the logo. You had a great crew, Mick. I mean, Batia. Batia Props, yeah. And her husband, I, I can't remember his name. They just never gave up. They just kept trying to make things right. Do you remember the, the pig? Batia. <laughs> Batia and the pig. This is a great little story. So we're on the set and Bob Shea comes on the set, very rarely on the set, but he turns around and, and he goes at the last minute, he goes, you know, what would really help would be if that pig barked at the camera. And <laughs> it was supposed to be just a dinner and we went past it, you know, yeah. and you saw the pig. And that was one of Bob Shea's rare days on the set. And he goes, you know, I'd love to see the pig bark at the camera. <laughs> And I saw her, Batia standing on set and she goes, 
oh, you mean like this? And she grabs that pig, lifts its snout up. And, you know, she was a uh, soldier. Yeah, Israeli forces, yeah. And she literally pulls out this freaking military knife that's like that long. And she just goes, duh, yeah. And she sticks her hand up inside of it and goes, like that. You mean like that? (laughs) <laughs> and so we cut a hole in that table and just the next thing you know she's making the pig bark and it was a real pig and it stunk oh yeah and i was right there with it because i'm operating the horrible <laughs> fucking camera the assistant's nowhere near to be found now he put the extension cord on the focus point and, and here i am by myself with my camera i'm thinking please god because i have to use the right story on this is that we were shooting out of the sequence that we were supposed to because it's a chuck, right? So we had this pig that really ripe, uh, a real pig because they couldn't afford aesthetic, to yeah. make a pig. Yeah. And you know, that thing stunk. I mean, it was horrible. And so when I see that shot, we were using, I was using a panel light on the camera so that I could get the light dimmed down and, and all these things I had to do cues on. So I had to talk to the crew as I were, we were doing it. And Patricia runs through the shots, if I remember correctly. And then we were going around the table, and that pig has to jump right at me. This is it was just the worst. I, thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, anytime. <laughs>